From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Jake Strand. And I'm Tracy McRae. Next month, Mayo Clinic will host its annual Individualizing Medicine Conference, bringing together experts from around the world. On today's program, we'll discuss the latest discoveries in individualizing medicine with a Mayo Clinic expert. Once you detect it, you can actually determine what tissue it comes from. So you can say this, there is a cancer present, and it looks like, based on the genetic makeup, that it may come from the lung or the kidney or the bladder. And that's directing you where to go and what to do about it. Also on the program, we'll hear the results of a recent Mayo Clinic study which found breast cancer survivors aren't following mammogram recommendations. And a pilot program using telemedicine during emergency transports. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Jake Strand. And I'm Tracy McRae. As we've discussed before on this program, individualized medicine is tailoring the diagnosis and treatment to each person based on their genomics. The Mayo Clinic Center for Individualized Medicine works to move the latest in genomic testing and therapies from the lab to the healthcare provider's office. Recently, there have been some pretty exciting advancements in cancer genomics, liquid biopsy, biomarkers, and CAR T-cell therapy, to name just a few. Here to help us understand what it all means is the director of the Center for Individualized Medicine at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Keith Stewart. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Stewart. Yeah, thank you. It's great to be here again. (laughs) Every time that you come to visit us, Dr. Stewart, um, it seems like you tell us, here's what's on the horizon, and then that's exactly where we're at the next time that you come to visit. So let's talk about um, cancer genomics. Are you talking about the genetics of the tumor or of the patient? Well, initially, uh, genomic medicine was applied to the genomics of the tumor, but increasingly to the patient's uh, germline DNA, which is the DNA they're born with. In some ways, in many ways, in fact, Genomic medicine has become standard of care in cancer. There are some types of cancer. Lung cancer comes to mind. Uh, Some of the leukemias and blood cancers come to mind, which one wouldn't dream of treating a patient today without knowing some genetic information about the tumor itself. What is changing is we're moving from small gene panels into a much deeper, more integrated genomic approach where we look at the whole spectrum of the whole genome as opposed to just small parts of it. That's the latest, greatest thing that's coming soon um, to many places. Can you break that down for me a little bit? I'm the layperson here. Well, in, in <laughs> the past, if you're a lung cancer doctor, you've been interested in seven genes which we know contribute to lung cancer and for which we may have a therapy or which may have prognostic significance. They may tell you how that cancer is going to behave. What we'd like to do now is to move away from just those seven genes to sequence the whole genome. The costs of doing that have plummeted. Uh, from billions of dollars at the beginning to just uh, thousands of dollars now, even hundreds of dollars in some cases. With the latest technology, we think we can now shift some of our genetic testing to whole genomes, so we don't just look at the seven genes, we look at all 20,000 genes that make up a tumor cell. It really is an exciting time. I was on the hospital service this morning. We were talking about a patient's case that was really what was going to happen next with that patient was driven in large part by what tests were coming back related to genomic information. So even now at the bedside, it's making significant difference in how we treat patients, how we talk to patients. I wonder, how are, how are you helping everyone keep track of all of this? Uh, well, it's a lot of education, a lot of uh, communication with our staff, uh, with the 
uh, medical meetings, the usual ways that we communicate the discoveries and advances. One of the things that is also changing, though, is this, which you already brought up, Tracy, is that we, we've begun to understand that a far larger percentage of cancers than we used to appreciate you're actually born at increased risk for. We used to think that was maybe 5% of cancers, but as we've sequenced the genomes of more patients, we've learned that for some cancers it can be as high as 20% of cases are from particularly ovarian cancer, for example. You're born with a predisposition to develop that cancer. So what we've decided that we're going to start doing soon is we're going to start sequencing the DNA you're born with, not just the DNA in the tumor cell. And we'll be able to identify if you were at increased risk from time of birth for development of cancer later in life. And we think up to 10 to 20% of all patients with cancer will fall into that camp. Once we've identified you as at risk, perhaps even before you've developed a cancer, or more importantly, your family members who are also affected have developed a cancer, we can put you in more intensive screening programs. We can devise therapeutic strategies to prevent. It could be surgical. They could be medication in the future. They could be vaccines in the future, ways to head off cancer. We like to think of it as intercepting cancer before it starts. And that's the liquid biopsy part that you talked about. So there's a blood draw. Is that what you mean? No, liquid biopsy is something a little bit different. Okay. What I mean is everybody's born with a component of DNA from your mother and father. And we believe that in people who develop cancer, 10 to 20% of the time, that the reason they've developed that cancer is partly because they were had an increased risk of that from time of birth because of the genetics they inherited from their parents. That's the, what we call the germline DNA. Cancer is a genetic disease. So when you develop cancer, it's because there's been a genetic mutation within a specific cell in your body. turns out that as cancers grow and die and regrow, they shed DNA into the bloodstream. We've learned this looking at the DNA of babies that's present in the mother and subsequently applying that technology to tumours. That's what we call a liquid biopsy Uh because if you can detect the tumour in a blood test, it means you don't have to go looking for it with x-rays or with needles. Uh, Rather, we can find it. We can find it at a very high sensitivity, often before you develop symptoms. So, for example, if we know you're at increased risk for ovarian cancer and perhaps one of your family members has become at increased risk, we believe that one day, not too far away, we'll be able to draw a blood test and monitor you on an annual or biannual basis for the earliest signs of ovarian cancer or whatever cancer we're worried about, and we could therefore intervene early when it's still curable. The most immediate application of it is not the screening, because screening is fraught with other issues. We've seen this play out with mammograms and with Mm prostate-specific antigen. There are risks to screening. The first implication of this is in people who already have cancer. You already have cancer and you've been treated with chemotherapy or surgery, and you want to know whether the tumor's completely gone or not, well, instead of doing PET scan or CT scans, you could use blood tests Mm -hmm. to monitor the disappearance and the reappearance of the cancer, probably at a higher level of sensitivity than an X-ray or a symptom uh, requires. And we have already have clinical tests available here at Mayo Clinic in which we can do this, for example, in melanoma or in colon cancer. How many different cancers are you talking about, all of them? I mean, like pancreatic cancer or uh, lung cancer, it has to be so far progressed before the signs and symptoms show up. So are you saying all cancers, or are there certain types? Well, it turns out there's a sort of, the belief is, and, and some of this still has to be proven, and we're doing many research studies to, to try, and some of our 
very talented scientists here are, are developing these tests, it turns out that there's probably a pan-cancer test which says, yes, a cancer is present. And for that, you might look at the most common cancer mutations in a panel of maybe 10 genes. But there's also beyond that, once you detect it, you can actually determine what tissue it comes from. So you can say this, there is a cancer present, and it looks like, based on the genetic makeup, that it may come from the lung or the kidney or the bladder. And that's directing you where to go and what to do about it. And when you think about how this is applied then to individual patients, the idea of, you mentioned the, the screening ahead of time, screening patients. Do you anticipate a point in the future where um, we are put into these profiles of risk based on family members and we undergo this screening? Do you think this is something will be more widespread than that? That's exactly what we think will happen. We think we'll, we'll identify patients initially who have cancer and we'll find those who are at risk and we'll then contact family members and invite them to have screening and that once they're identified, they will be placed into intensive, more intensive surveillance programs. The corollary of that, of course, is if you test negative, maybe you don't need as much screening. Maybe you don't need a mammogram mm-hmm. as frequently as other people or a colonoscopy as frequently as other people. Maybe we can save healthcare costs by diverting those people into less intensive screening, which is the, the positive side of things. Yeah. Health insurance is another issue. Maybe it's going to be more expensive for a subset of the population that's increased risk, but it may be much less expensive for the 85% who are not at risk. So once the patient has been treated, you can use that the liquid biopsy to see that the cancer is still gone or at bay? So if you're a breast cancer patient who's had chemotherapy and surgery and you want to know, well, or perhaps you've just had surgery and you want to know whether chemotherapy is required in the future, we think you might use a liquid biopsy as one way to determine did surgical resection really remove all of the tumor cells, or are there still enough left over that you can find using this very sensitive technique? What are biomarkers, and how are they used? So biomarkers are uh, any measure, biologic measure, blood, urine, uh, x-ray, in which we use those to determine prognosis, uh, and we use them to determine what drug would be most appropriate for what patient I'll give you an example. A very popular form of cancer therapy today, which you see advertised on television a lot, is cancer immunotherapy, particularly a class of drugs we call checkpoint inhibitors. The name doesn't really matter. The point is they're very expensive drugs. They've revolutionized cancer care to a large extent because they've allowed us to move away from conventional chemotherapy. Um, And they're fantastic. They've improved survival in a whole range of cancers. However... Uh, they only work about 30 40% of the time. A biomarker will tell you in advance whether you're likely to be a responder or a non-responder to that drug. Mm-hmm. Some of these drugs are only approved by the FDA if you do the biomarker testing beforehand. So we don't waste healthcare resources by giving the wrong drug to the wrong person, causing toxicity which without any chance of success, versus giving it to the right person at the right time. Um, there's been a lot of these therapies that we've seen in the news. We've, there have been exciting articles, you know, in the lay press about them. And CAR T-cells, one of those as well. I know CAR T-cells coming soon uh, here in Rochester at a high volume. Lots of other places it's popping up. What's your sense on, on what CAR T-cell is for, for those who may not understand that and just are hearing about it in the paper? These are very exciting, transformative, really. And I think you should probably do a whole program on these. I'm sure you will. What this is, is we take from the patient with cancer 
They're peripheral blood cells. We use a dialysis-like machine to collect them. They are then genetically engineered, and two genes are placed into the peripheral blood lymphocytes. We call them T cells. That's where the T comes from. And the gene that we put in is called a chimeric antigen receptor, or CAR, hence CAR T cells. But what those really are, are they train the cells to do two things. They train them first to go and find the tumor, very, a very sensitive way of detecting the tumor. And once they find the tumor, they call in their army of friends to do the, the killing of those tumor cells. This is already proven to be very successful and curative, in fact, in some childhood acute leukemias. It's now FDA approved for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. We believe it will be approved in the next year or two for multiple myeloma, uh, potentially for chronic lymphocytic leukemia. So for the blood cancers, these are really changing the way medicine and, and practice will happen. The problem today is there's a huge demand and there's a small number of slots. So there's a sort of in this frustrating limbo land of uh, we know it's going to be good, but we're not able to offer to everybody today, but we do have many clinical trials around the country in almost every major academic medical center offering CAR T cells, particularly in blood cancers. We've been talking about the latest advancements in individualized cancer therapies with the director of Mayo Clinic's Center for Individualized Medicine, Dr. Keith Stewart. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, Dr. Stewart will help us preview the upcoming Mayo Clinic Conference, Individualizing Medicine 2018. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Jake Strand. And I'm Tracy McRae. Each year, Mayo Clinic sponsors the Individualized Medicine Conference, sharing the newest, cutting-edge discoveries and how they can be applied immediately to improve healthcare. This year's conference will take place September 12th and 13th. And back uh, with us to preview the conference is the director of Mayo Clinic Center for Individualized Medicine, Dr. Keith Stewart. So, Dr. Stewart, tell us a little bit about this year's lineup. Well, this is a great conference on individualized meds. We bring hundreds of people from around the world every year to Rochester, Minnesota, to participate in the latest advances. Uh, there's been huge progress since the first human genome was sequenced in 2003. In fact, this year we're just uh, delighted to have Dr. Eric Green from the NHGRI, or the National Human Genome Research Institute at the NIH, to come and be one of our keynote speakers to give us an update on all the progress that's been made. And what do you expect some of the other highlights might be? Well, we've got some fantastic speakers. We've talked about CAR T cells earlier today. We have a speaker on that uh, very exciting topic in cancer. We're going to cover some pharmacogenomics, as we do uh, every year, which is the interaction of the genes you're born with with the medication you take. Uh, We have a speaker this year, I think, which is a new uh, avenue for us. We will talk about the use of X-ray imaging in individualized medicine and particularly uh, some of the use of artificial intelligence and how that might uh, interact with our individualized approaches to care. What? A robot? (laughs) Not a robot. uh, Artificial (laughs) intelligence, which we we like to call uh, actually augmented human intelligence today. This is the use of computers to, to... try and make sense of the vast amounts of data we get in healthcare through pathology reports, digital imaging of x-rays, lab tests, clinical notes, things that the human brain has a hard time processing. Are you talking about, for example, the the use of Watson in clinical trial application to help us find the right trials for the right patient, or does this even go beyond that? No, I think this goes beyond that. You know, one example recently, one of our some of our scientists looked at the uh, uh, depression. Uh, and Parkinson's disease is another area. Looking for connections, ways to predict outcome. To, the reason we like to call it augmented human intelligence is we want to help the physician at the bedside 
So the idea is that you will still, as a physician, be in charge of the patient's care, the individual patient in front of you, but you can be assisted uh, to the extent possible by a computer, by a machine that will help you sift through the mounds of data, put it in the context of all the other people out there with this disease, with these features, and try and give you some feedback and advice in your care management. Early days, just getting going, but uh, huge potential. I know in the past when you've been on, you've mentioned that pharmacogenomics, what does the future hold? Well, if you want to fast forward into the not so far away, but not right now future, we think at one point everybody will have their genome present in their electronic health record as part of the background of their health information. We like to think of it now, we call it the the tapestry of health, uh, bringing the genomics into play. And what we, we believe will happen is that there will be, just like you have all your allergies present for the doctor to see you at the top of your chart so they don't order the wrong drug, there will also be your pharmacogenomic result, which says, for this patient, this drug is a bad idea. Or, you know, for, the, or for this patient, you may need to use a higher dose of, mm-hmm. of anticoagulant and antidepressant. We had a great example recently uh, in our pediatric uh, practice where we see patients, uh, young children and adolescents with uh, severe uh, heartburn, essentially. And we see people have been through three or four other doctors before they decide to come to Mayo Clinic. Dr. Abash in in our practice applied pharmacogenomics to this group of young adults and and children uh, with quite remarkable results. First of all, about a third of the time he found that they just weren't on a high enough dose of the drug. And when he did that, they got better when he upped the dose. A third of the time he found the drug was working perfectly well and, and the conclusion was perhaps his heartburn is not why you're having chest pain and other symptoms. Look for something else. And a third of the time they found it was actually another medication might be contributing to the problem and it had nothing to do with the heartburn indigestion. They, they gave an example of a kid who was uh, falling asleep in the exam room and the parents said, yeah, he's always like that, we don't know why. And it turned out he was not metabolizing some anxiety meds he'd been placed on it. So, so there was really quite a remarkable story of how this could potentially be helpful. We've been talking with Dr. Keith Stewart, reviewing the upcoming Individualizing Medicine Conference taking place September 12th and 13th in Rochester, Minnesota. Is the public invited to this? or uh, The public can come if they want, but you have to register as okay. a participant, and there is a fee for that. Dr. Stewart is director of the Center for Individualized Medicine at Mayo Clinic. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Stewart. it be great being here again. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, Dr. Tom Shives joins me as co-host. We'll discuss the importance of continued mammogram screening for breast cancer survivors. And we'll learn about a Mayo Clinic pilot program using telemedicine during emergency transport. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. Picture this, your child is sick. How do you know if he or she needs antibiotics or if there are other ways to effectively treat symptoms? To prevent overuse of these drugs, it's important to know when home remedies can be used instead of antibiotics. Dr. Tiffany Casper, a Mayo Clinic Health System family physician, says if your child has an ear infection, consider using over-the-counter pain relievers in place of antibiotics. She says children's ear infections usually improve within two to three days, especially for kids who are two years or older. If your child's health does not improve within a few days, it would be wise to take them in to see their provider. 
Dr. Casper recommends antibiotics for an ear infection if your child is six months old or younger, your child is between six months and two years old, and has moderate to severe pain, or your child is two years old or older and experiencing severe symptoms. She says don't use antibiotics to treat your child's cold, flu, and most other respiratory infections, as most respiratory infections are caused by viruses, and antibiotics don't treat viruses. Antibiotics fight bacteria. So instead, Dr. Casper suggests offering your child warm liquids such as tea or soup. These can have a soothing effect and loosen mucus. Over-the-counter saline nasal drops or saline spray can also loosen nasal mucus. Try running a cool mist humidifier in your child's room or using steam from a hot shower for additional relief. Strep throat is caused by bacteria. However, she says most children with the symptoms of strep throat have a virus. So you should ask for a strep throat test before turning to antibiotics to cure your child's symptoms. Ice cream, frozen fruit pops, or cold beverages may soothe a sore throat. Older children can try gargling salt water or sucking on throat lozenges. Always encourage your child to get enough rest so his or her body has a chance to recover. And now let's turn to health info about the school year. All that reading, writing, and arithmetic can really add up. Dr. Elizabeth Cozine says as kids are growing and developing, they're at risk for injury if they're carrying something that's really too heavy. Now, this has to do with backpacks. She says complaints of sore joints, achy muscles, and back pain are signals that your student's backpack may be a problem. She says most young kids don't have low back pain or any back pain at all, so she takes this pretty seriously. Dr. Cozine says a good rule of thumb is to keep the backpack load to less than 15% of your student's body weight. When possible, choose a smaller backpack with wide straps. Remind your student to wear both of them on his or her shoulders. And ask about what's being carried around. If the answer is everything, help your student figure out how to lighten the load. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. According to a new study published in the Journal of the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, breast cancer survivors aren't getting the recommended number of mammograms following surgery. Hmm. The study tracked more than 27,000 patients after breast cancer surgery. One year after surgery, 13% of breast cancer survivors had not followed up with any breast imaging. Even more concerning, only 50% of patients tracked for at least five years followed mammogram screening recommendations. And here to discuss is lead author of the study, Dr. Catherine Ruddy. Dr. Ruddy is the Director of Cancer Survivorship at the Mayo Clinic Cancer Center in Rochester, Minnesota. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Ruddy. It's nice to see you again. Thanks so much for having me. I guess the whole point of this discussion is the fact that a woman who has had breast cancer can have a recurrence. It can come back, can it? It can. How often? So the risk of a cancer coming back or of a new cancer depends on a variety of factors, including things like the original stage of the cancer. The reason to do annual mammograms is really for both purposes, to find cancers that come back and also to find new cancers. Of these 27,000 women, I assume the majority of them had had a lumpectomy and radiation or a lumpectomy and some sort of chemotherapy? 
Well, we excluded women who had had both breasts removed because those women don't actually need to do any type of routine imaging. No breast tissue left. Exactly. If there's no breast tissue left, there's nothing to image. So our, the patients included in this study were both those who'd had lumpectomy and also those who'd had mastectomy, one breast removed. So really you were looking at the other breast. Exactly. If they'd had one breast removed, then they would be having mammograms on the other breast. Why are breast cancer survivors not coming in for imaging? Well, we really don't fully know all of the reasons. I suspect it's multifactorial. One of the reasons may be just the logistical barriers to getting in and, and getting, you know, getting the appointments and finding time in busy lives to, to do that. I think another potential issue is anxiety around the test. The, ish, the stress of going in for a test that might find a recurrence may be a deterrent for some people. If a woman has had cancer in one breast and has, let's say, a mastectomy on that side, is she more likely than the general popula- population to have a cancer in the other breast? The risk of cancer in the other breast is partly related to things like family history. So folks who have a strong family history are more likely to develop breast cancer period to begin with and then also more likely to have a breast cancer on the other side. Certainly we worry more about women who tested positive for certain genetic mutations like the BRCA mutation. For the average risk woman, the breast cancer on the other side after a unilateral mastectomy uh, is not a not a huge risk, but it is something that we know can happen and we want to find it early if it does. In the group of women who had lumpectomy plus radiation, what percentage of those uh, will end up having a recurrence at some time during their life? That depends on a lot of factors. So age, for example, interestingly, we found that age was predictive of mammograms. And interestingly, younger women were less likely to have the mammograms that they needed. While we know that younger age, first of all, there's more time to have a new breast cancer if you've been diagnosed at age 40 than at age 80. And then also, there is a higher risk of having a second cancer if you were diagnosed at, with breast cancer at a young age. So so that's a concerning finding of the study. We, um, there, When there's more time to have a new breast cancer developed, that's all the more reason to be having those annual mammograms. I, I know, but is it 10%? Is it 20%? Is it 50%? I mean, it, it, it seems to me like that needs to enter into the equation. If a woman has had breast cancer, lumpectomy, radiation, and her chances of recurrence are 10% or less, then maybe it's not so important for these follow-up mammograms. I think it's still important, don't get me wrong, but, but how common is it for a woman to have a recurrence after adequate surgical and radiation treatment? Well, as I said, it depends a lot on different factors. So there are women who are diagnosed, for example, at age 85, where their risk may be lower than 10%, and they decide with their doctor not to undergo screening for that reason because they really feel the risk is so low. It's not worth the discomfort. That's another factor that obviously I didn't mention earlier, but mammograms are not the most comfortable thing ever. And so, Did you know that, Dr. Shives? <laughs> I've heard that. Uh-huh. So, so uh, each woman's risk is individual. So it's really, imp- I don't want to give a, a broad number because it's not going to be applicable to any given person. Each person needs to talk to her doctor about what her individual risk is based on age, based on characteristics of the tumor. So more biologically aggressive tumors have higher risks of local recurrence. Also, um, higher stage, so larger tumors, if there were more lymph nodes involved, there's a higher risk of a local recurrence. 
I just wonder, what is the time frame that we're talking about here? Because once you're diagnosed with cancer, you've got that five-year window, magical five-year, if you can make it five years without a reoccurrence. I was going back, I didn't have breast cancer, I had lymphoma, but I was going back all the time, first month, then every three months, then every four months, and every six months. So do breast cancer survivors not get a mammogram every time they come in for their checkup? Is it different for breast cancer survivors? It is. So as you say, the, the follow-up visits in some cases are more frequent than the mammogram recommendations. Mm-hmm. Many times women are coming twice a year, for example, for up to five years after diagnosis, and they aren't having the mam- they only are recommended to have the mammogram annually. And why those are not all happening, part, we, we do know that not everybody, for example, is having those visits. So even if, uh, the, mm-hmm. the recommended frequency for the first few years at least is at least twice a year, and then for the next few years is at least annually, not everyone's able to do those visits. We know many of our patients live far away from the site where they were originally treated, and it might be difficult to drive five hours to have those visits. Um, and then there may be other factors, co-pays and other things sure. that deter people. Did the findings in this study surprise you? They actually didn't surprise me that much. They were very consistent with what other investigators have found using other databases. So what is the benefit? What? How can this study help clinicians treat patients specifically after their cancer treatment? I hope that it brings attention to the fact that we really need to talk to our patients about these recommendations and not just assume that everyone knows that they should do annual mammograms. The follow-up imaging recommendations for breast cancer are actually simpler than for a lot of other cancers in that we're not recommending routine PET scans or CAT scans or bone scans. Um, The annual mammogram is a lot less than than other cancer survivors of other cancers are recommended to do. So that doesn't mean we don't need to talk about it. That doesn't mean we don't need to help people coordinate these visits. And I hope that this being in the literature will increase attention to that. So basically, you have told us that if a woman has a lumpectomy and radiation or whatever treatment, uh, she should have a mammograms biannually, twice a year for the first few years, and then annually thereafter. No. Guidelines generally recommend between two and three years of at least twice annually visits. Those are not mammograms. Mammograms annually. Okay. And uh, even if you've had that breast removed, you should still have an annual mammogram to check the opposite breast. Exactly. But if you've had both breasts removed, you don't need any breast imaging. You have been here before to talk about a cancer survivorship plan, and I would think this kind of dovetails very nicely into that. It really does. So survivorship care plans are documents that explain to a patient what the diagnosis of cancer was, what kind of treatments were given, and then what the follow-up should be. And And now what? (laughs) Exactly, now what? And for breast cancer survivors, mammograms are really a key part of that now what. And I hope that as we give more survivors these cancer survivorship care plans, we will be able to improve upon these numbers. Great. All right, we've been talking about the importance of follow-up mammography screening for breast cancer survivors with oncologist and the director of the Cancer Survivorship Program at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Catherine Ruddy. Dr. Ruddy, thanks for being with us. Thank you. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll learn about a new telemedicine program being used by Mayo Clinic's Emergency Medicine Department. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Recently, Mayo Clinic's Emergency Medicine Department received a grant to study using video telemedicine to assist in the care of seriously ill patients during their transport to the hospital. 
Launching this October, the first phase will focus on supporting the Mayo Clinic Health System, and that includes 20 emergency departments located in communities surrounding Mayo Clinic's Rochester, Minnesota location. That's where we live. We're yeah, so lucky. Right here, the center, <laughs> the main campus. By putting video units in the back of ambulances, the goal is to help the paramedics and transport teams when they are faced with challenging clinical situations outside of the hospital. Here to discuss is Director of Community Emergency Medicine at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Christopher Russi. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Russi. It's nice to see you again. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Dr. Russi, great to have you here, especially to talk about this. Now, I, I think you have always been able to communicate by voice with the paramedics in the ambulance, but this is, this is one step better, isn't it? Yeah, we think so. So uh, historically, when faced with challenging situations or by protocol, paramedics will call by phone. Um, to get advice or uh, seek uh, seek advice on care or the situation they're facing. This is going to elevate that to a video consultation where we'll be in the field with the paramedic. We can speak with the patient, talk to the family. Uh, it'll just elevate the game of the care we can provide uh, right there in that moment. Have you always wanted to do this? Yeah. I mean, is this I mean, sort of been we, a dream? It absolutely is, and we're lucky to have the Center for Connected Care. Uh, and the partnership with them and with um, InTouch Health, the technology exists now that we can actually deploy it. So we were very fortunate to get a NOABR Foundation Award through the Connected Care uh, Center, and that's going to allow us to put these in the ambulances and uh, test the technology and see if it works in these austere locations. Dr. Shive said that this is in 20 emergency departments around Rochester, Minnesota. How big of an area are we talking about here? The, the telemedicine program itself will launch this October. Um, that is our telemedicine group supporting those 20 emergency departments. The foundation award that we're discussing, uh, we're going to be able to put three to four of these uh. units in the back of our ambulances here in Rochester. Okay, gotcha. We're also partnering with our friends in the pediatric intensive care unit because they'll be getting one as well and using it on long critical care transports for kids. Give us some examples of where in the past uh, you wished you had had this and how you might use it. Absolutely. So over the phone, it's difficult to see the situation. It's difficult to see the environment. It's difficult to see what the paramedics are faced with. And having that knowledge brings situational awareness to the teams when we're receiving those patients in the emergency department and in the trauma center. One of the most interesting things that we're going to study is patients that refuse transport. This is a real difficult situation for the paramedics to be in. So they get called to a home or, or location, what have you, and the patient says, I'm not going with you. It puts them in a very difficult situation, an ethical challenge, and we can now come on with them hmm. in these situations, help assess the safety, the risk, either encourage the patient to come or agree that they could stay. Now, can you um, move the camera around, or, or is the camera stationary, and where is it located? In the back of the This ambulance? is what's really neat. So the InTouch device is about the size of a laptop. It has a high-res video monitor in it, and they can carry it to wherever they need to go. Um, so the, the award is we're going to be testing this in the digital environment. Does it work over the mobile network well? Our ambulances have Wi-Fi. So we'll need to find out how much bandwidth are we going to consume with this video. Can it handle it? That's what this is really about. It's, the, it's a feasibility study testing the technology in the environment. And if it works well, then I think our next step would be can we deploy it. Do you have a special video doctor who's back on this end 
in the emergency uh, department, or how does that work? Our telemedicine program will be taking these calls. How often do the paramedics want to communicate with you? How often does that, that happen during Frequently. the ambulance trip? Frequently. It does. And now it's all over voice. Right now it's by phone. Yep. Um, and with this uh, new technology, let's say someone is uh, having a heart attack, uh, and you've been able to, you can see the EKG, right, mm-hmm. in the emergency room. Mm-hmm. You can talk to the paramedic about what you think ought to be done, how, but how will the video help you in a situation like that? So if the patient's unstable, we can guide them on alternative therapies to get them here to the hospital. We can talk to the patient ahead of time and say, look, this is what we're seeing and this is what you're going to expect on arrival to the hospital. So from a customer service and a patient experience perspective, this is a great thing. Uh, They won't be surprised when they get here. Yeah, I think it's just going to be useful all around, from the patient to the paramedic, even to us from situational awareness. What about the helicopter? It seems to me like the, the most seriously ill or injured patients come by helicopter Maybe you want a camera in there? Or? We'd love it. However, they don't have the ability for streaming at this time. I think some oh, tech sure. exists, but we just don't we don't have it on the aircraft right now. How long is the study ongoing? We'll start in October. The plan is to go for a year, and then we'll be enrolling uh, cases. And the primary outcomes are going to be: Did it work? How, did we have successful connections? How long was the connection? The bandwidth that was consumed. And then just some general surveys over the through the paramedics and the transport teams. Did they find it useful? Was it helpful? Did it change their management? And then we'll follow the patients just on their outcomes to see how it went. Will this shorten people's time in the emergency department? It's a great question. I don't know. And one of the things that we need to understand with this project, will we actually lengthen the time in the field? I could get involved with a conversation and spend too much time out there, and we, we want to avoid that. Is this the first time this is this setup has ever been used? I mean, there are other places that have, have used it or on a trial basis? There are other places across the country that have something similar that I think they're in the beginning phases like we are. But here at Mayo Clinic, yeah, to my knowledge, this is the first time. So tell us again where the, where the money came from. The NOABR Foundation. NORABRA, did you say? NOABR, N-O-A-B-E-R. Oh, okay. And you'll be one of the persons uh, in the emergency room who's helping guide the paramedics with the injured people who are in the ambulance. That's right. So you really do like the uh, research part or the, I don't know, testing and pushing to see where emergency medicine can go. It's fascinating. To take something from vision to deployment is a neat journey. And it's kind of the future of emergency care for paramedics. What else is happening in that direction? Forecasting out, there's new technologies coming where we can do tablet-based ultrasound, and you can do that in the field. And so one could envision getting a grant to study this or partnering with a, a company where a paramedic could have a tablet or an iPhone, and they plug an ultrasound into it, and they could start ultrasounding the patient sure. in the field, and we can see it live. We've been talking about the use of telemedicine in ambulances and critical care transport with the Director of Community Emergency Medicine at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Christopher Russi. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Russi. Thanks for having me back. And that's our program for this week. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs. Tweet us your health and medicine questions anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or email us at mayoclinicradio at newsnetwork.mayo.edu. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us.
Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.